Welcome to Noise Cutter. All right, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Noise Cutter podcast. I'm your host, Rex Chatterjee. So for this episode, which is another sort of cross post, um, a collaboration between me and myself from uh, my newsletter on Substack Business Thoughts and this podcast, Noise Cutter, we come to two topics that are pretty near and dear to my heart, and those are ESG and hacking, both of which have been in the news lately um, with some noise that I think uh, we might be able to clear up here. Um, also, if you hear some snapping and crackling in the background, that is my research assistant, my five-year-old pit bull called Mason, who is conveniently destroying a toy right now. So let's get into it. If you know me, ESG is something I care deeply about. And so when I started seeing news um, articles about the quote-unquote death of ESG, you know I had to jump in and regulate. Um, is ESG dead? No. Dying? Maybe. Uh, and Why? That's what we'll get into today. And also hacking. You know, I've been listening to a pretty good book on hacking and it's been on my mind lately. And then the Caesars hack comes out and MGM and you read into it a bit and you're like, wait, they did it how? Jesus Christ, right? It can't be that simple. Um, and yeah, it, it, it'll shock you when you find out exactly how the hacks were accomplished. The good news is that the really simple problems behind the vulnerabilities at stake uh, tend to have simple fixes, right? Um, and we'll get into some of those today and also that vital, vital book recommendation. So is ESG headed for extinction? I came across some articles recently about BlackRock, State Street, and a bunch of other you know money manager heavies closing their ESG funds, and it was sad to see, but it was not really unexpected. Um, and why it wasn't unexpected is not actually for the reason you'd think. Uh, nevertheless, is ESG on its way out? You know, the answer is maybe, right? It's definitely not no. Um, but here's what's what. So before we get into it, let's just talk about what ESG is from a basics level, right? For those unfamiliar with it, here's a quick explainer. ESG is the sort of new movement in corporate governance to advance initiatives focused on the environment, social causes, and better governance, right? So getting away from all the corporate speak, it's just a nice bucket to put a lot of things in that folks, you know, typically on the left and center left feel are important, right? Such as like reducing carbon footprint, uh, making supply chains more sustainable, increasing diversity on corporate boards and in management roles, keeping a better eye on not breaking the law um, as a company and things like that, right? But so the problem is that in the world today, we seem to have two kinds of people, right? And it's becoming ever ever more polemic, maybe. Number one, you've got those who feel that these are pretty obviously all good things, right? And things we want to do. And then you have those who feel that this is actually what's going to bring down all of society. And this is what actually the problem is, is this overly PC, uh, do-gooder sort of mentality. Um, you know, and lately there's been sort of a pitched battle between the two narratives, right? And this is, you know, starting and maybe even preceding the, the Trump era and uh, to and through to today and some of the political shenanigans that we are uh, currently witnessing go down. But that is a wholly separate podcast episode. Um, but in any case, right, the, the divide in America, in Western society, maybe in society as a whole globally, uh, that's not exactly news. Um, so anyway, with that little like, sort of quick wrap-up of ESG uh, sort of done, uh, let's go into the basics of everyone's favorite topic. I mean, obviously, it's mine, right? Uh, corporate law. Um, and note, uh, 
Um, I'll do a bit of explaining on on the key corporate governance and corporate law topics I need to get through um, here to kind of make sense of this argument. Um, if you're a fellow corporate lawyer like myself, feel free to, you know, fast forward, double time it, skip it all together, you know, whatever, right? Um, and if you're not a corporate lawyer, um, I can give you my address, send me a tuition check. Um, this is basically, uh, my professors at Columbia Law are going to be a uh, pissed about this, but uh, this is a good summary um, in maybe a few minutes of what you would spend a large part of the semester um, learning in in corporations in law school. Okay, so what we're here to talk about today uh, is corporate governance and the process by which corporations make decisions, do stuff, um, etc. right? So under Delaware law, which controls in matters of corporate governance for a large number of the world's leading corporations and is sort of what we'll work off of here, um, corporations are controlled by their boards of directors. Boards are comprised of directors who are elected by shareholders to basically steer the company in a manner that will be best for the shareholders. But what is best, right? And this is <laughs> sort of recalls that uh, famous line from the movie Conan where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, I'll put a link to it, you guys can Google it on your own time. But uh, what is best for shareholders? So is it money? Because, I mean, everyone likes money, right? Hell, it's the reason why people buy stock, right? Share price goes up, shareholders rejoice. Uh, so boards just do whatever it takes to make the stock price go up, and that just means increasing earnings, right? So this is pretty simple. Like, what what is best? It's it's money, uh, right? But let's say a drug company like Johnson and Johnson were to diversify into like other drugs, like heroin, right? Sure, entering the global heroin trade might boost earnings for the next quarter or two, but long term, that probably wouldn't end well. Almost certainly wouldn't end well. Uh, so there's this issue of term, right? Like, yeah, we can do like shady crap to like boost earnings in the short term, but long term, that's not a good idea. So we have to consider, you know, earnings not just now, but also for the future, for the long term, right? Um, and so the, the, the mandate is really to maximize value over time, right? And now this is where things get complicated because boards don't get issued their very own like personal Nostradamus, right? There's no AI app, you know, unless Bezos has one uh, that I know of that'll actually predict the future, uh, accurately, right? Um, so there's no way of knowing exactly today how things will play out over time. If a board chooses certain option B over certain option A, and the company loses money over the subsequent year, can shareholders sue the company in what's called a derivative suit uh, for screwing it all up? And the answer is not exactly, right? Under Delaware law, directors are protected by what's called the business judgment rule, which provides a shield from liability for a director so long as they've taken informed action in good faith with an honest belief that the action they've taken is in the best interests of the corporation, right? And I'm just kind of paraphrasing there. But that's super clear, right? I know. Yeah, corporate law is basically just paint by numbers. I don't know why people go to school for this stuff. It's so simple, right? Just be informed, good faith, and, and be honest. Uh, sadly, it's actually not so simple, right? And we'll get into exactly why that is uh, with respect to ESG right now. So the case for ESG. So now that we've mastered corporate law, it's time to figure out how ESG fits into all of all of this, right? And at the end of the day, corporate boards need to focus squarely on maximizing profit over time. ESG initiatives, for the most part, aren't concerned with near-term profits or profits at all. At first blush, it appears that we're actually at an impasse here, right? Uh, ESG, not about profit. Corporate boards must focus on long-term value slash profit. Can a board ever do anything that's ESG-related without violating fiduciary duties? Here we go, right? Um, 
But what happens at a company when global stocks of its required raw materials, like think of you know a paper company, what if uh, their timber stocks fall precipitously, thereby raising production costs and decreasing margin? Or uh, you know a company gets canceled for a social miscue, uh, which erodes its customer base, right? We've seen it happen. Or to a company that gets fined into oblivion for regulatory infractions, and you know uh, those are headlines that they're hard to miss nowadays, right? Massive fines for you know financial institutions, but not just financial institutions, right? Their regulators are perhaps some of the harshest in the world, uh, certainly in America. But um, the FTC has uh, really, really stepped it up, um, and other regulators as well, right? Um, and in the EU, uh, data privacy, first of all. Um, it's scary what can happen. Um, and so these are all very, very sort of real risks, right? And that gets into sort of my next point. Uh, for the lion's share of companies out there in the world, these are all risks. And if you ask me, ESG is just risk management rebranded. And there isn't a corporate board out there that doesn't engage in risk management. That's kind of what they're there to do, right? Oftentimes the tension is like management, oh, let's focus on profitability for the next quarter, two quarters, three quarters, whatever. And the board has to be like, yeah, listen, guy, like we need to focus on long-term value. So we need to de-risk, even if that means sacrificing some profit today, we need to ensure that there's long-term value for the foreseeable and, you know, thereafter future. Um, so... Again, we return to our two discrete types of people, but now we're going to phrase it in a different way, right? So number one, those who feel that environmental, social, and governance risks are likely and or nearer term, and those who feel that environmental, social, and governance risks are unlikely and or more distant, right? And so from my consulting days, uh, the phrase that gets used um, – I almost don't want to say this. It's it's what what is the closest alligator to the boat, right? You'll hear this bandied about, right? What's the closest alligator? What are we in the Everglades? Apparently, we're all in the Everglades. Uh, is ESG are these risks, right? The the natural resources failing, uh, climate change, um, you know, the risk of cancellation or not keeping up to pace and not being a, a workplace that is attractive to workers with respect to social goals, uh, regulatory and compliance infractions, etc. Are these alligators? Far from the boat, close to the boat, halfway in the boat, fully in the boat. Do they have a leg in their mouths, right? Like there's a varying set of perspectives about how close these alligators actually are, right? And so if we scratch the surface of that, you'll see what I've sort of led us into is kind of a trap, right? Because once we start thinking about ESG as less of like does a person care, right? We've got people that clearly just don't care. And then we have people that do, but that group gets divided, right? It's it's does one as an investor, um, right, or as a director with duties to investors care to sacrifice returns? Things get a bit more fuzzy, right? The same group two people from before are still very much in group two, but a lot of folks who were in group one might find themselves less sure of their answer now when you have to think about well, the money's on the table, right? Um, it's not just do you care about alligators? Do you not want to get eaten by an alligator? Yeah, I don't want to get eaten by an alligator. Okay, but now I say, how close or how likely do you think that is, right? And once you start factoring in, oh, well, I have this pressure to make returns, the ability to really care about alligators, you'll find people are now that used to be unified are now very, very mixed. And sort of the notion of an ESG fund, right? If you remember at the top, I was talking about how uh, State Street and BlackRock and a bunch of other folks have closed their ESG funds from lack of demand. And these news articles talk about, oh, it's pressure from conservatives and people on the right who like don't care about ESG. I mean, kind of, right? But it's also 
perhaps equally, if not more so, and this is the sort of controversial thing that I want to get to um, sort of in some more depth, the whole point of what I'm saying here is that it's also people that are just really, really, you know, thinking about their fiduciary duties and they say like, okay, well, look, right, like I might really care about ESG from a personal standpoint, but I can't justify telling management that we need to sacrifice returns in the next two quarters to four quarters because we really have to be concerned about like some ESG goal that, frankly, when you do the alligators analysis, that alligator is in a different country. Um, and that's that's kind of where we're at, right? And that's why I think um, there are some ESG headwinds. Um, and it's not because of people on the far right, uh, at least not only. Now, to be clear, right, I personally, if you ask me, uh, I don't think the alligators are in another country. I think they are not even far off. They, I think, are circling the boat, right? But my point is here, this is something about which reasonable people can disagree, right? And the position that the alligators are in, maybe not another country, but certainly far up the river, that I can't say is a patently unreasonable position to take. Um, Certainly with the environment and climate change, the alligators um, might actually have already devoured us and we might just be ghosts inside of an alligator. I don't really know, right? Scientists can say better than I. But for a lot of ESG risks... Um, it's not unreasonable to think that these are far away risks as long as one believes that they are, in fact, actually risks, right? Um, but again, right, I think that these should remain uh, a focal point, perhaps not an investment thesis, but certainly a focal point of good governance and long-term management. You know, why it doesn't work as an investment thesis is because essentially what you're saying is that like, all right, companies focused on ESG are focused on the extra long term. And as investors, right, the whole point is like, I want money now, right? I want to see that stock price just jump and jump and jump. And when you look at things like long term stability, they're oftentimes at odds with the, you know, quarter by quarter outlook of managers and sometimes of boards to just focus on near to midterm profits, right? So you can expect that from the investing public then not to want to look at companies that are prioritizing the extra long term versus those that are prioritizing the near and midterm. ESG funds closing doesn't surprise me because it's not an investment thesis. ESG is just sound business practice and sound business governance. And it's something that all businesses should increasingly be focused on. But the way to incentivize this isn't through pathway that focuses on investment and profit, it's through a pathway of requirement, right? And that is law and regulation. But, you know, of course, I would say that I, uh, after all, am a lawyer. All right, next topic, hacking. But before we get into that quick reminder, um, I'll put links in all this in the show notes. But if you wouldn't mind, Give us a review, a like, subscribe, you know, all the usual good stuff on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts. If you want to get the text versions of some of these when they come out on Substack, you can sign up for free at businessthoughts.substack.com. Okay, so hacking and the depressing reality of being a hack watcher, right? Um, Someone that just kind of pays attention to the world of hacking is that on any given week, I've got enough material to write an entire newsletter or an entire podcast episode just about hacking. Uh, The particularly depressing part is seeing people adopt this sort of uh, learned helplessness, and that's a term that I've borrowed from a book that I'll mention in a second, 
um, but learned helplessness, helplessness, Jesus, after hearing about so many large institutions succumb to hacks. And what is this learned helplessness? It's really just a, an academic way of saying uh, beaten into submission, right? It's like, oh, man, you know, the hackers are so powerful. They can take down all these big companies that have all these resources. And so little old me, uh, I'm definitely I'm just, you know, it's going to happen. I'm going to get act and uh, I am just going to, you know not take any reasonable precautions to protect myself uh, from being hacked because, well, it's just going to happen anyway, right? So so I'll just be helpless or I'm learning to just accept it and be helpless. Um, and that is a big part of the problem, right, with uh, contemporary cybersecurity and hack prevention is that, that behavior. And there's a great book. Uh, it's called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, and it's by a guy called Scott Shapiro. He's a professor at Yale Law School. Um, obviously, I don't need to tell you this. He's clearly a, an extremely bright person, and his book is amazing. And he goes into this topic of learned helplessness in uh, much more uh, exacting detail. But so when I write or record create uh, about hacking, um, I try to focus on the how as much as the so what. Right. But the how is much harder to write about to an audience that, you know, in most cases isn't deeply interested. It's not deeply interested about the ins and outs of cybersecurity. Right. Uh, if you were, you'd be a cybersecurity professional. And I'm happy that you're listening to little old me talk about this stuff. But uh, for the most of you, you're not cybersecurity pros. And so the how is can get kind of boring. Right. Um, but what makes this job sort of easy, right, writing about the how is that it's often so gobsmackingly stupid that it gets people to give me, you know, the, the, the most prized reaction from anybody that writes or, you know, does podcasts or whatever, which is the reaction of, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Um, and that's that's exactly what you're going to say once I tell you exactly how these hacks went down. Um, and so here we go, right? In this day and age, the internet having been around for so long now, you'd think that big companies and their armies of security researchers have been able to do, you know, a lot to make hacking so much harder, right? And uh, surprise, ding, 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 they have, right? The technical side of hacking um, is, is, quite frankly, not as easy as it used to be, and it keeps getting harder every day. But the one thing that like companies like Google and Microsoft and your more specialized cyber defense firms like you know CrowdStrike and ESET and uh, Trend Micro, uh, what these guys can't figure out because it's God's work, not theirs, is to make people, individual people, smarter. And that's right, folks. The success of so many huge hacks has hinged in each case on some human somewhere across the attack surface, which is kind of what we think about when you're like, all right, I want to attack this company. All of the places and ways in which I can attack it are the quote-unquote attack surface. Uh, some human somewhere across the attack surface has proverbially fallen for it, quote-unquote, right? And that's what happened recently with Caesars and MGM. In each case, the victim organization was subjected to an impersonation attack against its IT support system. And that is to say, hi, this is John Doe employee, and I'd like you to reset my password. Except it's not John Doe employee, it's hackers impersonating him. And based on data they scraped on sites like LinkedIn and other you know inter internet databases, they can create a pretty decent biographical sketch from which to uh, impersonate, right? Um, and so far from some like you know techno wizardry or uh, you know technomancy, uh, these guys have simply just manipulated unsuspecting humans, right? And that's what the hacks and so much of hacking these days really uh, hinges on, and it's unsuspecting humans. 
specifically with respect to the seizures and MGM hacks, I still haven't been able to figure out exactly how the hackers were able to make use of the reset password, right? So did the IT help desk person set the password to say, you know, password one, two, three, and then just tell the fake John Doe that password over the phone, right? In this day and age, I just, I, I don't think that's how it was done, right? Um, typically, you get these links that are sent to you via email, and you have to log into your email and click a link to reset your password. And so one has to then think, like, wait a second, how valuable could that be, right? Because this would go to, like, not your personal Gmail, but, like, your work email. And if you already had access to the person's work email, then wouldn't that give you the credentials that you're actually seeking, right? It's sort of cart before the horse. And so um, I'm going to dig deeper on this, and I'm going to maybe try to bring on some guests and, and kind of discuss this further, right? But what I'm kind of thinking of is like maybe they had access to email, but that wasn't sufficient to grant them like database or systems access, which they would need to then like actually do the hack, right? So the the file systems that they wanted to encrypt or um, you know download and then delete and hold for ransom, et cetera, um, there's some secondary credentialing that needs to happen that is based off of the first set of credentials, right? So like you have the second set that's supposedly harder, right? Um, but uh, all it takes is calling help desk and saying, hey, like I have access to my email, reset my credential for the harder one and just send it to my email, I'll breach the email. Okay, now I've got access and I can breach the so-called hardened second layer. It's not actually hardened. Um, and so that is is kind of what happened, right? And so the main issue here, right, is um, unsuspecting humans were able to be tricked to exploit uh bad policies, right? This has little to do with like, you know, hacking as we might, you know, from an untrained perspective, think about it, which is like, oh, I'm going to like write some code and inject some malware into this like, um, into this buffer overflow that isn't protected. And then it gets in. And then now, you know, I've been able to execute code on the machine that I'm trying to infect. And now I'm in from a purely technical sort of, you know, hands on keyboard standpoint. No, this was actually much more simple. It was uh, they figured out that okay, these these institutions have bad security policies that they will like send you your uh, password to the second hardened layer to your like less hard first layer. They breach the first layer and then here you go. Um, all they need to do is impersonate somebody and they can get the data they need to do that from LinkedIn and from the internet. Uh, so yeah, that is the crux of it, right? It had to do with people, uh, not actually with code or computers. Um, and that's the, the gobsmackingly stupid part, right? Because there is a way to very easily defend against some of these hacks. And that's through two-factor authentication, right? And the minute I say that, people go, oh, no, not this again, not one more person telling me I need to set up an RSA key. And you've probably at this point shut this podcast off and I'm talking to, you know, absolutely no one. Uh, but I'm going to say it, right? Because that is the easiest and simplest way to very effectively stop these sorts of fish or voice fish quote unquote, vish attacks, right? And I guess before I go any further, let's just like take a moment to footnote this. Yes, yes, I know what a SIM swap is, right? And like if the two-factor device is a mobile phone or a tablet, it's vulnerable to a SIM swap, but that's a much more complicated attack. And uh, frankly, I don't think the threat actors here, again, I'll have someone on who can verify what I'm saying here, but my semi-qualified opinion is that I don't think the same threat actors here 
could have pulled off a targeted SIM swap to overcome a 2FA or a two-factor authentication uh, in, in these contexts. But uh, what is two-factor authentication, right? And so it is requiring a second factor to authenticate, right? So it's like when you go in to put in your password to log into a service, you type in your username and password, it goes in, fine. And then you get hit with a, okay, now I need you to open your phone, go to this app uh, that you've downloaded where there is a secret changing sequence of numbers that changes every 60 seconds. Uh, that's, you know, corresponds to what you're trying to log into. And you have to punch those numbers in and uh, only the correct numbers will then yield access, right? Um, and so there's a number of ways to to do this, right? I remember, you know, back back in the day working um, at a large financial institution, um, we would have these physical keys, right? These little, like, they look like a USB stick on a key ring, uh, but it had a little, like, um, liquid crystal display LCD panel that would have these numbers that would just like flip every 60 seconds. And that sequence of numbers was your second set of authentication. So if you did not have that little thing, that key, you would not be able to, even if you had my username and password, you would not be able to log in as me to the systems. Now, that was, I don't even want to say how many years ago, um, but it was a while ago, and we have gotten a lot better and a lot more um, user-friendly when it comes to 2FA, right? So there are apps. You've got Google Authenticator, Microsoft Authenticator, and you basically, when you set up 2FA, you scan in a QR code, and it it puts then um, a little line in this like app that has a series of lines that have you know, what the service is, what your login name is, and then the uh, decaying numbers, right? So 60 seconds, every 60 seconds, it'll be a new set of numbers. And uh, it's annoying. Sure, it's one extra step whenever you want to log into something. But at the end of the day, it's either that or learned helplessness. And I don't know about you, but like, that seems like a really low price to pay to not have to sit back and say, well, with me, I'm just going to wait around to get hacked. And again, that's not to say that two-factor authentication will protect you against any or every hack, right? Um, there's ways to get around it, um, SIM swapping being one of them, right? But at the end of the day, it is way better than not having it, and it is way harder to hack if you do have it. And here's the kicker, it's pretty much free, right? Um, the only thing that really might have to be paid for is um, a physical key, right? And so I personally use a physical key. Um, I don't like to talk too much about my own personal security measures, so I won't go into further detail around what exactly I use or how exactly I use it. Um, but I will give you some options, right? And these are listed in the show notes. Um, and I go through four basic steps, right? Um, four layers of a security program that I, at least, in, again, my semi-qualified opinion, uh, think is a reasonable way to go around securing personal and, and confidential information technology systems. And again, right, some of the biggest hacks that occurred that crippled companies like MGM, people are uh, worrying about their like personal information having been compromised. Uh, so as a company, right, that's Obviously, a huge liability. You've got regulatory issues. You've got lawsuits now. And ultimately, the consensus seems to be 
if there were better safeguards around humans and passwords, these hacks wouldn't have happened. All of those billions of dollars of value that have been lost all came down to the fact that these guys didn't have something that you and I can set up for ourselves, for our own personal devices, for free. And like, sure, maybe setting it up on an enterprise or organizational level comes at some cost. I'll tell you what that cost is. It's not a significant portion of enterprise value, right? It's not that. Uh, And the consequences of a hack like this, uh, they are. And so, again, this advice I took when somebody else gave it to me, and I'm offering it now for anyone that wants to take it. Um, set up two-factor authentication, stay aware, stay trained up on at least the general goings-on with respect to hacking and make cybersecurity an increased priority within organizations that you can influence, right? Whether it's work through a leadership position or anywhere else where you have the power or authority to effectuate change. Uh, Being more cybersecurity aware, you know, perhaps we could call it part of the governance part of ESG. These things are related. Who knew? Um, it's important stuff. And it will separate the wheat from the chaff in companies as history continues onwards. And so will this podcast. Our next episode will drop soon. Um, and I will leave links to some of the stuff I talked about in the show notes, including Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, the book that I've been listening to that is stellar about the topic of of hacking and the contemporary history of it. Okay, and that is all. Until next time, it's Rex, and I will see you all later. Bye. The Noise Cutter Podcast is a production of Titan Grey, LLC, and is hosted by me, Rex Chatterjee. If you found our podcast helpful and want to say thanks, please head over to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever else, and give us a review, leave a comment, and hit that follow or subscribe button to stay up to date on the latest. For more about our guests or this episode, head over to our website, noisecutterpodcast.com, where you'll find contact info for our guests as well as links to some of the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to reach us directly, just send an email to info at noisecutterpodcast.com. This recording is a copyright of Titan Grey, LLC, with all rights reserved. This podcast may be construed as attorney advertising, and prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice, and your listening to this podcast or contacting us about it does not form an attorney-client relationship. No affiliation or relationship, including an attorney-client relationship, exists between us and our guests unless otherwise stated. For full terms of use, please visit our website at noisecutterpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, here at Noisecutter.